Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And back when we did our episode on Lucille Ball, which as listeners may recall, was a sponsored episode brought to you by CNN, on the short list of comedians that we proposed for that episode was Abbott and Costello. Uh, we ended up going with Lucy, but I haven't been able to stop thinking about Bud and Lou ever since, and I've really wanted to talk about their story. Yeah, we were not kidding when we were like, here is our giant list of people in comedy history we would love to talk about. I have a long list of comedy people I would like to talk about. Uh so these were two men who really defined in many ways the comedy duo. They weren't the first, nor were they the last, but they were really a, a pretty significant pair in terms of entertainment. And their work is quoted literally all the time, sometimes by people who know the lines but could not tell you where they came from. Like I have watched people do the, I'm a bad boy, and you go, oh, I, you're into Abbott Costello, and they look at you with the blank face. They don't know. They got it from a cartoon. Like they did <laughs> They don't know that it actually came from two people who were amazing comedians. Uh, and the relationship between Bud Abbott and Lou Costello was really, really complex. They were two very different people that ended up bound together for life because of their partnership. And the way their story unfolds is really fun at times and really tragic at others. Uh, and heads up going in. First, there is a bit more info on Lou Costello here than Bud Abbott, and that is because Lou's daughter Chris wrote a really lengthy biography of her dad, which is complete with interviews of friends and family. It is very thorough. Uh, there is not really a comparable biographical account for Bud Abbott, probably at least in part because he was a much more private person. Uh, second, this is a two-parter because there is a lot of ground to cover, and even with two longish episodes, there is still plenty that had to be left out for time. So uh, while it would be great to do a comprehensive 22-part episode on Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, I imagine by the end I'd be the only person still in it. <laughs> so we'll start with some biographical information about each of them. Bud Abbott was born Bob Abbott on October 2nd, 1895 in Asbury Park, New Jersey. And he was born to a circus family, uh, which always delights me. His mother, Ray Fisher Abbott, was a performer as a bareback horse rider, and his father, Harry Abbott, was an advance man. He was one of the people who would arrive at a location before the Traveling Circus Act to scout and book shows and make arrangements once a deal was struck. And I want to point out right out of the gate that that 1895 is a contested year. There are allegedly documents that state his birth year is 1897, but often it is told as 1895. So uh know that that's a disputed fact. And it is one of those two years. But after Bud was born, Harry and Ray decided they were going to leave behind the itinerant circus life. And they settled at Coney Island. Harry was actually instrumental in the establishment of what came to be known as the Columbia Wheel, also known as the Columbia Amusement Company. And so the wheel, which started in 1902, was actually the first burlesque circuit in the United States. It was a professional organization that booked acts to tour in rotation, that's where the, the term wheel comes from, to theaters that were on the circuit. Bud started working with his father at Coney Island as a teenager, and he left school to do so. Thanks to his father's connections, he got a job at the Casino Burlesque Theater in Brooklyn working as treasurer, and that meant that he collected money and complaints, and he relayed both of them to the management. Yeah, I like that um, often in looking back at these old accounts, the cashier was called the treasurer, which sounds a little bit more important. 
<laughs> at least to today's ears, or maybe just mine, but... So in 1918, he became treasurer at the National Theater, which was a Detroit burlesque theater. Uh, and I should point out, there's a little gap here, and I found this interesting factoid, but was never, ever able to... Um, validate it or find any additional information. There were two different biographies, both online that I saw that had this little throwaway line that he was kidnapped and taken to Norway when he was 15, but I never found any uh, anything to substantiate that. So that may have been what happened in between his time at Coney Island and when he moved to Detroit, um, but we don't know. But it was in Detroit that he met the actress, dancer, and comedian Betty Smith. And Bud and Betty Smith, who had been born Jenny Mae Pratt uh, before she changed her name to Betty Smith for show business, fell in love and they were soon married. Bud continued to work at the National Theater after he and Betty got married, and he was eventually promoted from treasurer to manager. In 1924, his work at National included a new role, straight man. Betty had noticed that Bud would watch the show from the wings. When he eventually confessed to her that he'd like to try out the stage for himself, she encouraged him to do so. So he started appearing as a straight man first with his wife, Betty, as a duo called Bud and Betty. But Betty realized that her husband soon had a lot of options for partners. Quote, Bud played straight man and I was the comic. It soon became obvious to me as we toured the circuit that all the comics wanted to work with Bud, and I knew my days were numbered as his partner. Bud was so good that he quickly built a name for himself when was asked to appear with various vaudeville performers, and some of them much better known than he was. It became a common practice that if someone was sick and couldn't do a show, that Bud was the person who would fill in. And after the 1920s ended, Bud and Betty decided that they would move from Detroit to New York, and Bud spent the early 30s working for a number of theaters and burlesque shows on the circuit. Now we'll move over to the young life of Lou Costello, who was born Louis Francis Cristillo in Patterson, New Jersey, to his parents Sebastian and Helen Cristillo on March 6th of 1906. He was the second of three children. His brother Anthony was three years older, and his sister Marie Catherine was six years younger. Lou was a really outgoing kid who made easy friends uh, with a lot of children from an orphanage that was across the street from the family home. And he would often uh, sort of loan his athletic skills to the orphanage sports teams when they would compete with uh, teams from other organizations. And he also got into his fair share of trouble as a kid. At one point, he accidentally set fire to the family Christmas tree when he was trying to show a friend how a magic lantern, his new magic lantern projector, uh, which required a candle to operate, there's a funny story in his daughter's biography of him where his siblings saw him walking back and forth from the kitchen with just a glass of water, progressively more and more quickly carrying just a glass of water each time before they realized he had started a fire. Uh, nobody was hurt, although they did lose their beloved family piano, as I recall. And another time he got in trouble because he and one of his friends wrote the F word all over the upholstery in the family living room. That would be problematic at my house, I know. <laughs> Unlike Bud Abbott, Lou Costello didn't come from a family of performers, but he knew that was the life he wanted from a very early age. He envisioned himself first as a dramatic actor, and then inspired by Charlie Chaplin as a comedian. He tried out various musical instruments, and he learned to sing and dance as well. At the age of 12, he promised his mother, Mom, one day I'm going to be a movie star and make you proud of me. Just wait and see. You'll be the most famous mom in the world. He was also a good athlete in a number of sports, and as a teenager, he also boxed under the name of Lou King without his family's knowledge or permission. 
But one night, his dad went with a family member to see a fight, and he saw Lou in the ring. The following morning, Lou's secret was outed over the family breakfast. His mother was not pleased. And despite the fact that he was really seen as a rising star in boxing, Lou never stepped in the ring again, although he did go to the fights as a spectator for the rest of his life. He also saved a nine-year-old young girl's life on the beach at Asbury Park. This child had gotten farther into the water than she could handle, and when Lou and a friend heard screams for help, they spotted her and retrieved her. A lot of the onlookers thought that she was surely done for, but Lou was able to administer mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and revive her. As medical professionals arrived, he slipped away from the scene because he was embarrassed by all the attention. Yeah, it's kind of funny because he seemed to want attention in a lot of ways uh, for being a clown throughout his life. But he was also a very generous and kind man in many ways and seemed to want to downplay that a little bit more. When Lou's brother Pat had a measure of success in the entertainment business through his jazz band, Pat Cristillo and his gondoliers, it made the acting hopeful uh, Lou sort of envious. He stayed in school in accordance with his parents' wishes, but all he wanted was to run away to Hollywood. When in 1927, Lou, who was then a young man of 21, told his parents that he wanted to go to Hollywood, his father thought he was talking about on a vacation. When it became clear that it was an acting career and not a visit that was being discussed, Lou's father was completely against the idea. After a lot of haggling and his brother Pat offering to send Lou money to keep him afloat while he got on his feet, the family finally agreed. Lou's father actually took out a loan of $200 to pay bus fare for his son, but Lou alternated between hitchhiking and taking buses to stretch his cash. He got to Hollywood and he got work on the MGM lot as a laborer. And at that point, he depended on the kindness of some friends for places to sleep until he had enough money to get a small apartment. And when he finally did get himself a place, that was all that he could afford. He could not pay for utilities or luxuries of any kind. So he scraped by in the most meager of ways until he could save enough money to have his utilities turned on. By being on the right set at the right time, which was when a stuntman did not show up for work, Lou did manage to get into pictures in tiny roles. He was hoping that as talkies became more popular and some actors found themselves unable to make that transition, there would be more opportunities. But after a year of that, he was not getting anything other than bit parts. He finally took the advice that actress Eileen Pringle gave to him to return to New York, work on his acting, and wait to be discovered on the stage. Yeah, at that point, it was kind of a more common thing. Remember, Hollywood was still sort of in its infancy. Uh, it was it was much more common for scouts to go to New York and watch plays and try to find actors that they thought they could bring out to California. But Lou never made it to New York. He only got as far as St. Joseph, Missouri, before he ran out of money. And he ended up working there as a comic in a burlesque theater for a year, making $16 a week, before a dispute over a requested raise finally reignited his desire to get back to the New York, New Jersey area. And it was during this period that he transitioned to the last name of Costello from Cristillo, which his brother Pat had already done. After a vaudeville producer saw Lou performing his comedy act in a bar in Patterson, he offered him a job as a comic at the Orpheum Theater. After that show wrapped, Costello moved on to working at a theater in Passaic, New Jersey that showed movies and then had comics perform in between the features. He teamed up in his first comedy duo with a longtime friend named Al Williams, but the partnership came to an abrupt end when Williams died of a heart attack only after only a few shows together. 
And Lou continued to work uh, as a comedian, and it was while he was trying to make a name for himself as a comic in New York that he met a chorus girl named Ann Battler, originally from Providence, Rhode Island. Costello eventually won over the young woman. Uh, she wasn't interested in him at first, but he was wild about her. And after a brief courtship, the two were married on January 30th of 1934. And they both continued to work in burlesque shows together until Anne actually broke her neck in a car accident that was caused when Lou fell asleep driving them both home from a late show. She recovered, but her dancing career was over. While the Costellos were expecting their first child, Patricia, who was born on September 28th, 1936, Lou's career changed forever. And we will talk about that after a quick word from a sponsor. So now we're to the point where these two lives meet up, but there are a number of different versions of the story of how Bud Abbott and Lou Costello actually began working together. One of them goes like this. In 1936, an act called Lions and Costello were booked for an appearance at the casino theater where Bud worked. But Lions, who was playing the straight man to Costello's antics, was sick and couldn't make the show. A crowd had already filled the theater when news of Lions' illness reached the venue, Costello was basically at his wit's end when somebody told him that the guy who worked as the theater's cashier had some experience as a straight man. So according to this version, the desperate Lou Costello asked Bud Abbott to fill in for Lions, and that night history was made. There was a perfect balance between the two performers, and the duo was an instant hit. The crowd loved the pairing. But the reality was a little less centered around one particular moment. According to Costello's biography penned by his daughter, Bud and Lou had met each other on the entertainment circuit before that night, and they had become friends. They would uh, work on silly skits together between shows just backstage, uh, sharing stories and bits that they had learned from other comedians, and even developing some new ideas together. But they were both already performing separately on different comedy acts. Bud had been working with a comic named Harry Evanson regularly, and Lou at that point was teamed up with Joe Lyons. But they would both sub in for each other's partners as needed. Eventually, Bud decided to move on from his act with Evanson. He wrote to Lou, who was working on the road at that time, to suggest that when his current engagement had wrapped up, they should meet. Lou wrote back, quote, don't do anything, Bud, till I get there. Once Costello's previous booking with Lions was done, they officially teamed up as Abbott and Costello. So that second sort of less lightning-in-a-bottle version makes a lot more sense, even if it is less thrilling. The fact was that at this point, at least on the, the burlesque and vaudeville circuit, Bud had already gotten a reputation among performers as a really stellar comedic straight man by the time that he and Lou had become an act. So it actually would have been really weird if Lou Costello had never heard of him and someone was like, wait, there's a guy in the, in the cashier's box that could do this. Like, that would be bizarre. It would suggest. There's a random person. Right, right. it would suggest complete blinders and, and lack of knowledge of his own industry on the part of Lou Costello. Regardless of how it all really played out, the two comedians were a perfectly balanced act. But Abbott was a tall, lean man with a serious demeanor, and Lou Costello, who was 11 years younger, I never quite realized that there was that much of a disparity, uh, was short and stocky. He was lively and silly. Abbott and Costello started getting bookings immediately as an opening act for burlesque shows, and they toured both burlesque and vaudeville theaters. 
They actually only continued to play in burlesque theaters, at least in New York, for a year after they started together. And that's because in May of 1937, New York's reformist mayor, Fiorello H. LaGuardia, shut down all the burlesques in the city as part of an action against what he felt were morally corrupting elements. As the future of burlesque looked uncertain, Abbott and Costello were offered a gig in Atlantic City. Bud, who had been working in burlesque theaters since he was a teen, was reluctant to abandon the circuit, especially as the two had a regular booking on it. But Lou was adamant that they could be seen by important people in Atlantic City. Yeah, there was definitely a concern that as New York had gone, so would the rest of the burlesque circuit and that they would all quickly be out of jobs. And it's been speculated in some retellings of their lives that this was where the famed 60-40 split of their take came from, with Costello offering Abbott the bigger share as part of the effort to convince him to go to Atlantic City. Uh, But in reality, it was already pretty customary for burlesque comedy teams to split the take in favor of the straight man, because it was considered a harder job. Lou Costello once said, comics are a dime a dozen, good straight men are hard to find, but that sentiment on Lou's part would change a little bit over the years. They were staying busy with bookings, but they weren't getting the same rates they had on the burlesque and vaudeville circuit. Fortunately, in their second year together, the comedy duo was booked on the Kate Smith Radio Hour, which was a popular show at the time. It was the first big exposure the two comedians had outside the touring circuit, as the Kate Smith Radio Hour was a national broadcast. Yeah, it was a big shift because it was kind of going from this like regional touring area where where they had names, but they were definitely big fish in small ponds to being exposed to the entire country. And they were actually recommended for that job by comedian Henny Youngman, who wanted to get out of his contract with the radio show to take a job with Paramount Pictures. Initially, Ted Collins, who was the producer of the Kate Smith Radio Hour, was not interested. He thought the Abbott and Costello Act really needed to be seen and that it wouldn't translate to the non-visual medium of radio. He was also concerned that putting a burlesque act on the show was risky to its reputation. A lot of people pressured Collins to rethink his position, noting that their act was clean. So the burlesque excuse was not really valid and that people really responded to their comedy and their timing. Collins finally caved, figuring he could put them on once, and if they crashed and burned, it would hurt them more than it would hurt the show. And that first show actually went well enough that they got asked back, but they also were asked to do one particular thing to get back on. Either Bud or Lou, it did not matter which, would have to change his voice, according to uh, Colin's direction. Apparently, radio listeners had difficulty telling the two men apart. And this is when Lou Costello adopted the higher pitch to his voice that would become so much a part of his stage persona. As their appearances continued on the radio program, the audience really fell in love with Abbott and Costello. At times, the cheering and laughter of the radio studio ate up so much time that the act would run long Collins would have to urge them to wrap up so that Kate could perform. They became regulars on the show. They wound up with a salary. They even subbed in for Kate when she took a vacation. Perhaps most important to the producers, they helped propel the, the Kate Smith Hour, which aired on CBS, to the number one position in its time slot, which was no small achievement. They had all always, before that point, fallen behind Rudy Valley on NBC. And in the midst of this early blossoming of Abbott and Costello's career in radio, Lou and his wife Anne welcomed their second child, Carol, on December 23rd of 1938. We'll talk about their most famous sketch, but we have to do a quick sponsor break before we do. 
This early stage in the career of Abbott and Costello is often cited as the time that spawned their most famous bit, a wordplay sketch that they co-wrote with a comedy writer named John Grant that was titled Who's On First? Most of our listeners have probably heard it. If you haven't, I will include a link to it in the show notes. It is a classic. But there are also accounts that really indicate that they were actually working on this bit before they ever even became an act together. So that period of time we talked about before when they were hanging around backstage at shows and kind of playing off each other for fun. Uh, and there's even a write-up in a, a 1943 issue of the Chicago Tribune that suggests that this bit was long before the Kate Smith Radio Hour. Uh, that particular article was written to bust myths about the two performers, so hopefully their information was accurate. One of the interesting pieces of trivia about that bit is that Ted Collins allegedly saw Who's On First when he was scouting the pair for Kate Smith's show. He wasn't really wowed by it. It was one of the sketches he felt could never translate to the radio, and he kept shooting it down every time they pitched it for the show, as long as they were regulars. Finally, in a bit of manipulation, Lou Costello got the sketch on the radio by pretending that he and Bud just had, like, writer's block and had no new material one week, which was an outright lie. The two of them were constantly coming up with stuff. And he suggested that maybe they should just skip that show, <laughs> um, which was a complete bluff. Ted Collins, knowing that Abbott and Costello were a huge part of the show's success at that point, told Lou to just use that baseball sketch he'd been pitching forever. That night, the sketch killed. The studio audience loved it. People called the network to rave about it. As for the bit's co-writer, John Grant, he became a salaried part of the writing staff for the show. He continued to write for and with Abbott and Costello for years. Lou and Bud ended up working on Smith's show for 99 weeks, so a little over two years. And during that time, Kate Smith really kind of took them under her wing. She coached them on how to handle all of the attention, pressure, and expectations that came with being in the public eye because she saw that they were probably going to be super famous. Uh, she helped them pick out clothes, and she also just gave them tips on presenting themselves in public. From Kate Smith's radio show, Abbott and Costello's star rose very quickly. On June 19th, 1939, they debuted on Broadway in a musical review titled Streets of Paris. Their work on the show got fantastic reviews, and they became the darlings of Broadway. The next obvious step was for the team to transition to pictures, but they faced an interesting hurdle there. So while there was definitely some interest from Hollywood, there were also concerns among studio heads that Abbott and Costello were radio players and that they would not be able to transition to the visual medium of film. Given that this is the reverse of the concern that Kate Smith's producer had when he was booking them for radio off of the burlesque circuit in the first place, this is somewhat hilarious now. But at the time, it was very frustrating for the two performers. Nevertheless, they remained interested in striking a studio deal, and their agent, Eddie Sherman, was instructed to keep on working at it. In the meantime, Streets of Paris was staged once again, this time at the New York World's Fair, and Bud and Lou were once again engaged as part of the cast. They performed the show an exhausting four times a day during the World's Fair, and they were also booking additional gigs for their comedy act on off days and late at night. Yeah, their schedule sounds so grueling to me at this time. Like, it's one of those things where you always hear people touted as the hardest working man in show business. They were seriously working so hard. Because can you imagine doing four shows a day, and then when you're done, you run off and do like a midnight comedy show and, you know, do that for an hour, and then I would be so wiped out. But they were hustling. 
their first Hollywood studio offer ended up coming from MGM. But that offer was $20,000 to appear in small roles in a couple of big musical pictures. But being billed as one act of many really didn't suit them. MGM debated over making a better offer, but while they ruminated on the situation, word had gotten out that they had made a bid to put Abbott and Costello under contract. An executive at Universal named Maddie Fox heard about MGM's offer and set up a meeting. He, too, was offering them a chance to be members of a large cast, but he offered more money, $35,000, and promised that the pair would be featured performers. So Lou and Bud took that deal, and in 1940, the comic duo were signed at Universal Studios. And that's where we're going to end this episode. Uh with the promise of an exciting film career ahead of these two comedians. Uh, and then we'll pick up with, with their really, really intense and fast rise to wealth and fame. Uh, and kind of what happened after that on our next episode. Do you have listener mail for this one? I do. I have some listener mail. This one is from our listener, Bethany, and she writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, I love you wor- your work. She writes nice things about us that I'm always too awkward about reading to do so. And she's writing us about the bombing of the Atlantic Temple. And I will pick up in the middle of her her email. She says, I tend to let the episodes build up and then I listen all in one gulp. So I know this is a bit late, but I was especially interested to hear about the episode of the Atlanta Temple bombing. As soon as I finished it, I had to send a note about the episode to my mother, who is also included on this email, and the information here is presented with her permission. Uh, it was the synagogue that she attended as a child, and in fact was the synagogue my parents were married in. My mother was six when the temple bombing occurred, and it affected her profoundly. She listened to the podcast as well and said that it brought back a lot of memories. The following segment is from her. And this is the part her mother wrote. I was six. My oldest sister was 10. We had already left for religious school before word got to us about the bombing. And since the only phones folks had at that time were landlines, we had no idea what was ahead of us. When we arrived at the temple, there were so many people there just standing around, looking at the space where beautiful hand-carved wooden doors had stood. There were broken bricks and glass everywhere. I remember fragments of the many conversations that stemmed from that moment. My mother and father wondering if the bomber intended for the bomb to go off once the children were in school. Their friends wondering if standing up for civil rights was worth this. Rabbi Rothschild speaking from the pulpit and in the classrooms. The fear I began to feel that someone, someone's hated me because, well, I didn't know why. And this I remember. And then she relays uh, friends at school who called her pejorative slurs. Uh... My mother also remembered that Jews weren't allowed in the public pool or allowed to join the Girl Scouts. She wrote, So many people speak wistfully of the past, how lovely it was, how civilized, how moral. I'm glad the past is the past, and I wish it was dead, but it's not. She then wrote something that Jews say frequently whenever we talk about slavery, oppression, and especially when we talk about the Holocaust. In ceremonies such as those surrounding Passover and on Yom HaShoah, we retell what happened, and then we say never again. My mother wrote, never again, never again, not for my children, not for African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, LGBTQ, women, anyone, anywhere made to feel small and ugly and less than. Then then Bethany writes, thank you again. And I hope that the podcast taught a lot of people about the bombing and why it happened. Uh, and then she gives us permission to read this. I'm totally choked up. It's so sweet that she shared this with us. If you would like to write to us, uh, you may do so. 
at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us across the broad spectrum of social media. We're everywhere. Pretty much we are Missed in History. That means on Twitter, at Missed in History. Instagram is Missed in History. Facebook.com slash Missed in History, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you would like to learn uh, a little bit about anything that your heart desires, you can go to our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks. Type in that thing you're curious about in the search bar. You're going to get so much content. It will keep you busy and informed for quite some time. If you would like to visit us online, you can do so at MissedInHistory.com, where we have a archive of every single episode of the podcast that has ever existed, all the way back to the beginning, long before Tracy and I were here. Uh, you can also find show notes. Those used to be on a separate page from the show page, but now we have consolidated those together, so things are, are a little bit more streamlined going forward and you can also just you know tootle around and visit us and see what things we've we've put there as well as our show notes and our uh, our episodes because sometimes there are other little gems hidden there and you should indeed come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 